Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. On the streets of Baltimore, shooting is rampant, the murder rate is approaching an all-time high, and the mistrust of the police is at a fever pitch. With nerves frayed, neighborhoods in distress, dedicated community members and leaders, compassionate law enforcement officers, and a progressive young city councilman try to stem the epidemic of violence. Filmed over a tumultuous three-year period covering the lead-up to and the aftermath of the Freddie Gray death in police custody, Charm City is an intimate cinema verite portrait of those surviving in and fighting for the vibrant city they call home, which is Baltimore. Directed by renowned documentary producer Marilyn Ness, known for such films as Camera Person, Trapped, and E-Team, um, as well as the uh, one of the participants in this moving documentary, and that would be Alex Long, one of the many sons of Clayton Mr. C. Guyton, we're lucky enough to have with us today in talking about this remarkable new documentary, Charm City. To both you, Marilyn, and Alex, welcome to Film School. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. Um, I sort of described how the the backdrop of the of the film, Charm City. But Marilyn, what was it about the time and the place that prompted you? to move forward with documenting the the ongoing slow-motion tragedy that was happening to, to Baltimore. Yeah, we actually uh, decided to wade in on a film about the divide between police and citizens in late 2014 when we were seeing these tragic cataclysmic moments in social media and on the news in like 30-second clips around the country. And we wondered what was going on in cities around the country in the day-to-day between police officers and communities of color in particular. Um, and so we were we were looking for a city that actually was trying to find a way forward. Uh, we had a sense that maybe to, to capture something different, we needed to look through a different lens. And so we called the Department of Justice and said, where is there a city that's trying? And they said, hands down, Baltimore. And so we wound up in Baltimore uh, at the end of 2014, the very beginning of 2015, which was four months before Freddie Gray's tragic death. Um, and so we really had a, a fair amount of time of just seeing the city as it was um, and meeting folks like Alex and Mr. C as they were before that happened to, to Baltimore. And we stayed in place for all that time, understanding we were not really interested in that one case. Um, and so, you know, found ourselves deeply embedded over three years in Baltimore, um, really following, moving away from just following of what wasn't working between police and citizens and reflecting on epidemics of violence in our cities. Mm-hmm. And for you, Alex Long, was uh, how long have you and your family lived in Baltimore? Um, <clears throat> I've been in and out of Baltimore on and off my whole life. Um, I grew up in foster care. So during the earlier years, I may have spent a total of like eight years outside of Baltimore City. But my whole life has been in Baltimore, so I would say over 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing for my girlfriend, Octavia. You know, her family, uh, she's a military brat. <laughs> okay, okay. Technically, she's from Germany. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> and, and, and most of our family's in the D.C. area. So she she definitely wasn't born 
or familiar to Baltimore at all. Like it, it was something that she really had to get used to and kind of caught her off guard. Just in kind of how like gritty and raw the city is, uh, especially like say when you you coming from a different walk of life, it, it's a, it's a lot to try to take in. Yeah, well, I'm curious in that 20 year period that you've been in living in Baltimore. Yes. Have there been periods of times has has there been kind of a a back and forth in terms of the violence and the accessibility to education and and job opportunities has it been better or worse or in the I'm talking about the period of time in which uh, Maryland a, was there to document the city of Baltimore but have there been a back an up and down or has it been what's it been like uh it's been pretty much status quo everything kind of been the same um and it's not just with baltimore any city that you go to just look at the school systems yeah i mean most of the books that these kids are using to study from are outdated you know so that just goes to show right then and there like nothing really changes too much uh and unfortunately in our city it's been a replace the face type thing so You know, you, you, you put a new person in office, then that will give the presumption that everything has changed and everything is really staying the same, okay. if not getting a little bit worse. Okay. Uh, so if, if that would answer your question, yeah. I have nothing changed except for, in most cases, for the worse. Yeah. Um, Educational-wise, even with how the people interact and deal with each other. Say, when I was growing up, it was really like a family type feeling, so you could go on almost any neighborhood. You may not have lived there, or but you felt comfortable enough that you ain't had nothing to worry about. Yeah. Nowadays, you could live on a block; you don't even want to come outside. And you've been living on this block for ten, fifteen years, and you're so worried about all the extracurricular that's going on that you you, you almost become a hostage wow. to your neighborhood. You know, so that that's the one thing I've really seen change, that it went from really a family-friendly place to kind of really like the war zone. Like I say, that the, the people really feel hostage to not even want to come outside. Marilyn, yeah. how did you get to know Alex and and Mr. C? What was sort of how, how did you get into the story that you told in, uh, that you tell in Charm City? Yeah, we, um, we had a sense that we wanted to follow the police, you know, and we did get the permission of the Baltimore Police Department. And then we were looking for something we didn't quite understand, but we referenced it as the policed, you know, people who felt excessively policed and patrolled. And so uh, we had a local co-producer, a woman named Miriam, who was from Baltimore. And so we began a a search of community centers and different groups and community leaders uh, to try to find a a place, you know, a, a, a center that we could build off of. And um, someone mentioned that the old, the old health commissioner mentioned to me, like, yeah, there's this place called Rose Street in East Baltimore. You might want to check it out. And I remembered we had gone from that same day, we went from a place that had, like, pottery classes and kids' dance classes, and we walked into Rose Street to meet Mr. C, and you just immediately had the feeling of this, this is something different. You know, this is a place that's built for guys who don't believe the community center is meant for them, right? He made it so that they'd feel at home there. And when we got there, there was actually a de-escalation in progress. Two, two guys had been having an argument, and we, Mr. C actually didn't even need to get up. He 
he started to get up, and all the guys were like, we got it, we got it, Mr. C. And they took the whole thing down, um, and, you know, and nothing, nothing blew up. And so we weren't even sure what had happened, but I had the sense that this is where we want to be. This, yeah. is where, this is where this story is happening. What's the backstory on Clayton, Mr. C. Guyton? What, where is, where is, is he lived in that neighborhood for a long time? Is, does, what is his... Go ahead. <laughs> Alex just said Mr. C's Mr. a ninja. C, a ninja. He, <laughs> He's a ninja. <laughs> yeah, he, he, I, I tell him all the time, joking with him, like, Mr. C, I know you the feds or the CIA or somebody. <laughs> he got too much intel. As long as I know Mr. C for over 13 years now, 14 years, he always had a strong grip on the community, and he's not from our community. Okay. To be clear, to be clear, so he's not the CIA or the Fed. <laughs> okay, he's not, he's not. <laughs> the intel. <laughs> this man with holes is like he's a Fed or something. Like, like I said, he don't even live in the community, but every time a fight, an argument, I'm talking about just like not even shooting this. I'm just talking about a regular fight and an argument. Yeah. Mr. can call my phone and be like, you might want to go around there and talk to Charles because him and his, and I'm like, how do you know about this? <laughs> he, he, he says live in a whole other part of town and everything. So the fact, and, and, and that's what really kind of, I see always excited me and made me want to like model and copy after him. Cause for a person to have an interest in a community when like I say he, he has no connection to it. What? It's strange. Yeah. I live in this community. But, but, Mr. C did grow up. He grew up in West Baltimore. He grew up in the McCullough Homes, which was one of the sort of notorious housing projects. Um, and so I think he has deep roots in Baltimore, but oh, yeah. Yeah. He, he lived in California for a long time and worked for the government, and then he came back and worked in corrections. Oh, and, yeah, he's been around. <laughs> but I think, he felt, I think he found that, you know, the systems that he was in was not, was not serving the people he was watching walk through them. Right. And so about years ago he decided to well now probably 22 years ago he decided to open the rose street community center and they basically like bought a building on the corner of of rose and ashland and the local drug dealers firebombed it because they didn't want them there they didn't they didn't understand what they were doing there well, well technically if i could clarify yeah. yeah uh technically he never bought the building until after the effect originally and this like say that the empowerment message of taking over your own community. Yeah, he honestly kind of hijacked the building. <laughs> the vacant was there for about four or five years. Just vacant. The, the ceiling had partially collapsed, and it, it was just like a sore eye. So he really just took the building, and slowly but surely, over time, him and a couple guys, Nathan, always going there, take all the trash out and stuff like that. Like, yeah. and then he rehabbed it. And maybe like a year or two after that, he didn't got the property and rehabbed it and all that. The owner showed up, yeah. and when they seen all the work that Mister C had did, he offered to sell it to him for you know a real good price. And the guys in the community didn't really understand what Mister C was trying to do. You know, uh, it was you know unprecedented. It's like still to this day, there's nobody that that's pretty much taking it on themselves. Yeah to change things. So when the guys first came across Mr. C and, you know, he was determined that you're not selling drugs on this block. So so the the end of the story, of course, is they firebomb the house. Mr. C pitches a tent and just sets up shop outside that, that property and says, I'm not leaving. So we can come to a truce, 
but I'm here and I'm going to and I'm going to be here to try to bring yeah. um, a different message to this neighborhood. And so and he's been there ever since holding morning meeting and serving the community in whatever way they need. Right. Guys, right. Actually, five of the place comes to the meetings. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's it, it's obvious his love for the for the people that come to him in those meetings. Tough love, but certainly a, a love for for those who are there. Uh, I want to just quickly remind our listeners that we are talking with Marilyn Ness, who's the director and producer of the film Charm City, as well as one of the subjects of the film, Alex Long, whose roots go back many years into this community, this Rose Street community, as well as works with uh, uh, Mr. C in trying to build a stronger community for the people who, who live there. Um I want to, with our other people in the film, and I really want to talk about them because I, I was obviously Captain Monique Brown uh, and the other officers, Officer Eric Winston and Officer John Gregorio, but also Council Member Brandon Scott, who provide, he particularly provides this idea that there is a path forward, there is a way of getting there. In a place, a better place, and particularly drawn to his idea about how police are burdened with being not just police officers, but social workers and all the other things that that should be a bit of their job, certainly in trying to bridge build, but certainly shouldn't be their job. And I love the way that they're sort of trying to. Well, I don't want to get in too far. Let's not go too far down that road. Needless to say, there are people who provide a level of hope to the to this community, this obviously a community in distress. Um, Marilyn, talk about the other people that, in addition to Alex, but the, the police as well as uh, Brandon Scott, your take on, on on their part in what's happening in Baltimore. Yeah, I mean, we had a sense when we started that we weren't really hearing the full story of people. If you just watch the news, you just get either see the mayor or the police commissioner and you get sound bites. And so when we went in there and we, we met the officers that we were going to follow, um, the thing that struck us most is how similar what, how similar their language was around what it was they were trying to do. Like Mr. C and Alex, they were really troubled by the violence and felt a personal burden to deal with it. But I think, to your point, there's so much beyond, you know, the violence is the root of many systemic problems um, or is the consequence of many systemic problems at the root. And I think there were so many things that fell beyond the role of policing, and yet the only people you call is 911 when something goes wrong. So, so we, we felt this burden that the police had. And at the time, you know, while we were filming, they had been put on 12-hour shifts like four different times. Wow. And, you know, so they were exhausted. And, and when they're on a 12-hour shift, they're really actually working 15 or 16 hours if they catch a call towards the end of their shift. And, so, and they were totally understaffed. So they were exhausted. And we just thought, like, why does why does that why are they the only ones that get that phone call? Um, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, was, to a, to a, you call uh, you call a carpenter to a to a situation. He brings a hammer. That's what he knows, right? Right, exactly. You, and 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 that isn't what is at play here. The what is at play is, as you described it, a whole bunch of other things. As Alex described it, schools that are failing. Job opportunities that aren't there, there and 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 a and a predatory people involved in in the community taking advantage of this depressed situation, um, and it really 
it really comes through. I, I want to let our listeners know that this is a uh, this is a portrait of a city, a portrait of a of a, a community, a street, Rose Street, that is. There are so many nuances to what's going on. There's the involvement of the police. There's the involvement of Mr. C and Alex and trying to make things better. But there's also the invisible hand of things outside of this city that are making it insanely difficult to to make progress. Um, and I want to be fair. I mean, if I'm if, if I'm misstating the, the situation, either one of you, Alex or Marilyn, uh, please let me let me know. But this is. I remember watching Bill Maher a couple of years ago, and uh, D.L. Hewley was on on there, and they were talking about Freddie Gray, I believe, at the time, and so at least a situation similar. And he, and and D.L. said something that really resonated with me, and that is, and I'm going to lay it on the line in terms of white people here, because that's the power structure most mostly. He said, if white people really wanted this to stop, it would stop. And I'm talking generally about power structure. But if they wanted this to stop, it would stop. And 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 am I? Is that fair? Am I being? I mean, unduly harsh. That, that's a hundred percent accurate. Um, it it kind of goes to what I said in, in the actual film when I was saying how we had the, the 171 dead black people, and we're not considered a state of emergency. But if 15 white people die over the weekend. I guarantee you National Guard be all up and down every neighborhood in that community. You know, so they say it, it can be done if they wanted to. But that's why I say it, it really falls on us to show them that we wanted to. Because to me, the, the biggest problem is they're so comfortable because they feel like we didn't accept this, this type of lifestyle. Yeah, You know, so they're not going to sit up there and complain on our behalf when <clears throat> in their eyes, we're keeping it going, you know, so we really have to show society as a whole that we're tired of crying and going to funerals and burying a loved one at the loved one at the loved one. We're tired of every time that a family member died, it just put the family deeper and deeper into a financial burden and crisis that then only create more problems. Yeah. One of the things that, you know, the nod, the nod that we give, you know, because we try not to be heavy-handed right. with the film, I hope, but the nod in the title is we understood that the white people call Baltimore Charm City. There's beautiful places in Baltimore. It's a, it is a fun and beautiful town, but if you go to black communities like Alex's, they call it Harm City. Right. And so when, when we designed the title and we had the sea flicker, yeah, Murderland, Bodymore, yeah. So when we designed the title, we were trying to show that this is a nuanced place, and and you may not, and people may not be seeing the world through the same lens or with that, with any degree of the same privilege. Right. And I want to be clear when I say white people, I'm talking about power structure. I mean yeah. that, that's really what I'm I'm alluding to, and that's what D.L. Hewley was uh, he was alluding to is this would stop, and and. Yeah. and yeah, and Alex, to your point, I mean, can you imagine, uh, you know, in Brentwood, if fifteen people died in a weekend? Just recently in Baltimore City, right before we came here, it was a homicide of a 25-year-old Caucasian male that happened last Wednesday. When the homicide originally happened, the mayor, the commissioner, everybody was in Federal Hill. They had a big old candlelight visual. Everybody was speaking out against the violence and all that. Three days later, they caught the murderer. I would love if that was the average 
whenever we had a homicide in our city. Right. That the mayor, the commission, everybody that came out for the young male that lost his life, as sad as it was, for the young man to be shot in his head, point blank range for nothing. But we face this every day in the city. Yeah. You know, so it, it's the approach of how we attack things yeah. to why they keep going. Like I say, if, if we had that press every time it was a homicide, trust me, it wouldn't go how it go. Yeah. I, I, I do. I also just want to add, you know, our feeling was because there's this, you know, a distrust that has been bred over many years of police right. um, because of zero tolerance policies and the war on drugs and all of the ways in which, you know, 50 percent of young men like Alex were put in prison on probation or parole. That's created a distrust in the community of police. And but the problem is, is if you don't have someone to call, then violence takes root. Um, it's like a you know, lawlessness that unfolds. And so um, for us, the reason, you know, as we understood that <clears throat> the violence wasn't a side story, it was a product of the distrust and, and became an essential part of our film if you wanted to understand what was fundamentally broken between police and citizens. And so, you know, Alex describes the exact problem that continues to breed distrust and keep it from being a place where both his community and the white community is able to expect law enforcement and justice in the same measure. In the film, we see people like Captain Monique Brown, we see Brandon Scott, we see people who are, and this is constant, Mr. C, Alex, your work, all the constantly in motion, in trying to set a new, new parameters, set new goals, set new expectations for the community in ways that are a way out, or at least the beginning of a way out. Uh-huh. And 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 it, the film does a wonderful job of that. And there are good people here, good people who are trying to do everything that they can. But I, you know, and I just I chap when I when I hear people or chafe, I should say, when I hear people say, "Well, if they just pull themselves up by the bootstrap, if they just had the initiative," this is so systemic, and it's hard not to see these things when. They're right there in front of you. I can't be the only person or you or – there's many people who see what it is. Uh-huh. But we, are, we choose our priorities, and our priorities are not to, to, to address this in a, in a way that's meaningful. And well, I, that, was, that was part of our choice to, to, to follow people who were in a meaningful and beautiful way trying to right. address the problem instead of the very stereotypical one-sided negativity that we'll get out of the nightly news, right. um, because it turns out there are many people who are standing in place, not pulling themselves up by the bootstraps, but trying to reach a hand to their brothers and sisters who, who are in need of support. And we thought if we could shine a light on those folks and see the real difference that they're making right. day in, day out, perhaps we can end those very um, trite and overused reasons for letting things be the status quo and sort of give everyone a nudge to see what can you do, what what can you individually do with your extra hours in the day or your extra resources to lend a hand to someone else and make a difference? I'm a believer, a, 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 hope, a hopeless optimist. Uh, I'm a believer that individuals can make a difference. I agree with you, and I'm with you on that. I really am, Marilyn. As, as dour as I've been in describing what's going on, I, I, I agree with you. This is the way things happen. But yeah, need resources. You need you need a, you need to see that the, you've got to tunnel out of this situation, and um, that's part of what what is being described here in the film, Charm City. It's a terrific film. Uh, it is uh, just to let us know where, or let people know where they can find out more about the film. Joy heard it's Charm City Doc. 
com charm city doc to find out more about the film it is produced under the auspices of pbs so i assume that it, it will be eventually screening there it'll be screening here in los angeles at the music hall in beverly hills of all places here in los angeles um music hall of uh, terrific theater check that out on october 19th but thank you so much marilyn again for your work as a producer on the films that you've been a part of and now, as well as director of this terrific documentary, Charm City. And Alex, to you and your family, all of the very best and continue your work against a strong headwind. But you continue to do it because it's the right thing to do and it's what's best for you and your family and your community. Thank you, Alex, for your work. Thank you. I Thank appreciate you. this. Thank you so much for being here and uh, all the best. Take care. Thank right. you. You too. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.